0: You know, Jay, I still can't believe Storm kept wearing that enchanted ruby that she stole
1: from Kandra. Oh, that wasn't Kandra's ruby. The one Storm wore on and off as part of her costume was her mom's.
0: Uh, Okay, so it was just a regular ruby then? Sure. That's a relief.
1: Unless you combined it with the rest of the set. Then what happens? It can open portals between dimensions. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 388 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome, at long last,
0: to Operation Zero Tolerance. Well, almost. We'll get there in this episode. But there's some other stuff too.
1: Operation Little Bit of Tolerance.
0: Yeah, first Operation reference to an old 70s comic that comic scholar Douglas Walk really, really likes. I mean, I trust Douglas's taste. Yeah, so this is weird. We've talked a little recently about how sometimes stories can feel like filler between events. And what we have here in X-Men Volume 2, number 62 to 64, is a neat little three-part story where the X-Men fight Sebastian Shaw... But in Hong Kong, and they team up with Shang-Chi, you know, Shang-Chi, the master of kung fu, who has deadly hands, also of kung fu, and who had one of the better face for Marvel movies not too long ago.
1: I still haven't seen it, and I feel bad about that, because I, I know it. I know it's supposed to be really, really, really good, and, and I just... I'm, I'm a graduate student.
0: <laughs> There's a lot going on, and to be fair, there are approximately infinity Marvel movies and shows at this point.
1: There is so much television out there. It's bad. I mean, some of it's bad. Some of it's very good. It is bad how much good television is out there. It almost makes
0: me nostalgic for, like, the mid-90s or so when there was not a lot of good genre television out there. Like, a lot of the time we just watched mediocre stuff and it was what we had, so we were totally okay with it. But, yeah, there's a lot of, I don't know, is the phrase prestige TV? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, too much. My list is very long, especially because I just moved and we can't really like put the TV anywhere until the painting's done, and that got delayed because the painter's car died. It's a whole thing.
1: It's a whole thing. The painter should invite you to come watch TV at their house. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. All right, I'm going to give them a call after this. Uh, But first, so we're going to be covering X-Men 62 to 65. You may note that that includes one more issue than the 62 to 64 I just mentioned as being part of the Shang-Chi story.
1: That's right. And as you may have gathered from Miles' earlier tease, that is going to be the prologue to Operation Zero Tolerance, the big, big, big summer event.
0: We have spent so long leading up to this. I am genuinely very excited for this event.
1: Not as long as we led up to Inferno.
0: Uh, Well, that's true. I mean, really, everything before Inferno was a lead-up to Inferno, and everything after Inferno is the after-effect of Inferno.
1: Right, so we're still in Inferno, but, you know, there's going to be OCT, too.
0: Yeah, you know, it can be both. It can be multi-layered, like an onion, or an ogre, as I recall. Man, Shrek references. I haven't made a Shrek reference in a long time. Oh,
1: see, I was going to go straight to the Road to El Dorado's both as good.
0: I feel like if you're going to reference one of those two, then maybe the Road to El Dorado is a better choice.
1: Definitely queerer.
0: Yeah, well, fair, unless you look on certain parts of the internet. But we digress. So, we're going to be covering some X-Men comics. Maybe we should talk about what happened previously on X-Men. Space. Yeah, a lot of space. Currently, half of the X-Men are in space. Which leaves longtime X-Men Cyclops, Phoenix, Storm, and Wolverine on Earth. Along with the team's newest member, Cannonball. Well, okay, he's new to the X-Men. He was one of the leaders of the New Mutants and of X-Force for ages, so we should show some respect.
1: Unlike the current writers, who are basically presenting him as an absolute greenhorn. Well, I may be the newest X-Man, but...
0: A lot of dialogue starts that way.
1: I may be the newest X-Man, but I am wide-eyed and idealistic and have definitely not been leading a group of, you know, anti-government fugitive militia members. For several years. Cannonball grew up so much
0: during well, really new mutants and X-Force, but especially X-Force. Ah, well, we've we've sung the song before.
1: He remains 9 vulnerable while blasting though, and that's the important thing. Well,
0: I mean, obviously. Anyway, Earth is really not very friendly to mutants right now, between mutants being blamed for the deaths of most of Earth's favorite superheroes after the onslaught event. And the assassination of anti-mutant presidential candidate Graydon Creed. And a group of former Morlocks called Gene Nation, having slaughtered a nightclub
1: full of humans recently, and hamfisted AIDS allegory—the Legacy Virus having spread from the mutant to human population, kind of nominally. I mean, I don't know if I'd
0: call it hamfisted, like maybe sometimes, but I think sometimes the Legacy Virus is handled well. I think overall, the Legacy Virus is handled well. It varies. It does vary. Anyway, in the wake of all of those things, an international organization called Operation Zero Tolerance has popped up to make nefarious, if ambiguous, plans toward the mutants of the world. But first, Kung Fu. That brings us to X-Men number 62, Games of Deceit and Death, Part 1 of 3.
1: Ah, hockey.
0: Hmm. Exactly. This story about hockey is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Ben Robb, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Bear, colored by Chris Lichtner, lettered by Richard Starkinson Comicraft, and Albert Duchesne. So yeah, Carlos Pacheco, he's going to be the regular artist of X-Men for about a year from here. He previously did a bunch of Excalibur. We, we really like his work. Uh, he's going to be replacing Andy Kubert, who had a very long run. And unfortunately, in current events as we record this, he just revealed that he was diagnosed with ALS, which is uh, also called Lou Gehrig's disease, which is, which is not good. So that really sucks, and I was very sorry to hear that. He to, seems to be a good dude, and he certainly is a very good artist.
1: Which brings us to the coast of Scotland, near the home of MI6 agent Clive Reston. Have we ever seen Clive before?
0: So Clive Reston, we haven't seen, but Shang-Chi certainly has. He's a member of MI6, a British intelligence organization, and he worked with Shang-Chi against Shang-Chi's nefarious, villainous father. Uh, We'll get to that in a sec.
1: Shang-Chi's nefarious, villainous father, who is himself a nefarious and villainous licensing issue.
0: Oh, boy howdy.
1: So Shang-Chi heads in for a secretive meeting with his, his old comrade.
0: And this is a change of pace because he has previously been
1: searching for the inner peace I had so long sought to achieve from the foolish games of deceit and death born of men's folly. Hey,
0: it's the title. Take a drink. And okay, this phrase makes sense. I looked it up because it just keeps getting repeated. And apparently this was kind of Not a catchphrase of Shang-Chi himself, but a catchphrase of the comics
1: he was in. Oh, fuck. I love it when characters say the catchphrases of their books.
0: Oh, it's so great. And it kind of made sense, because, like, you know, in his old comic, it was all about his search for peace versus getting caught up in all of this, like, sordid, dirty, underworld, criminal stuff. I think—I haven't actually really read much in the way of Shang-Chi comics, but that's what Google and a bunch of articles about Shang-Chi comics tell me.
1: Thank you, expert source Dr. Internet.
0: Alas, a group of Sifan cyber ninjas are waiting for Shang-Chi with their red ninja suits, gold armor bits, and random extremely complicated guns and headsets and visors. It's kind of like if someone made the Lego space minifigs that I used to love so much as a kid look more realistic. I mean, a little more realistic.
1: I just had ones that looked like astronauts.
0: Uh, Those were the first generation. Later on, they would always do a good faction, an evil faction, and a neutral faction. Uh, I was personally a big fan of, I think they were called Magatron. They were a neutral faction that had, like, magnetic stuff, and they had this black and red and translucent green color scheme. I I really liked Lego space a lot.
1: I I made a, a Lego Curiosity Lander once.
0: I mean, that's kind of awesome. That's, like, real space, which is also awesome and much more important than fantasy space if
1: perhaps not quite as cool. Fewer explosions. Uh,
0: yes, yes, exactly.
1: So let's talk about Shang-Chi, because um, you mentioned you did a bunch of research. I know almost nothing about this dude. I know there are some rings of power. I know he, he has fists of kung fu. Um, and I know that he's played by the guy from Kim's Convenience, and that's really all I got. So the whole
0: ten rings, rings of power thing... My understanding is that was mostly associated with Shang-Chi for the movie, because normally that's a thing with the Mandarin, who's more of an Iron Man villain. Uh. Shang-Chi, well, one thing he has in common with his movie counterpart is that he worked for his evil dad, realized how evil said dad was, and then rebelled and worked against him. Now, in the movie, his dad was a very sympathetic, if still somewhat evil character, played by an excellent dramatic actor. In the comics, his dad is Fu Manchu. Jay, have you heard of Fu Manchu?
1: I have.
0: Yeah, so listeners, for any of you who haven't, Fu Manchu was from this series of pulp novels from about 100 years ago at this point. And he was this evil Chinese crime lord who was basically the, the very embodiment, and in fact, I think uh, the, the book, one of the books even says at one point, the very embodiment of the yellow peril, which was essentially a racist caricature Um, that was directed toward uh, a certain type of Chinese man. Um, It wasn't cool, but it usually involved some exaggerated features, like a really long mustache, um, being very brilliant but soulless. In fact, one of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, comics, Tongue-in-Cheek, mentions that uh, a lesson to learn is that the Chinese are brilliant but evil. That's referring directly to the Yellow Peril stereotype. Um, And yeah, Fu Manchu is really just the the C figure one guy of that stereotype.
1: If if you're looking for more updated examples, most of which are rooted in that pulp portrayal, um, Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon, from at least the early versions of Flash Gordon, is is definitely that. Um, the villain of Big Trouble in Little China is a parody of that that stereotype.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So one might ask, what the hell was Fu
0: Manchu, a villain from pulp novels from a hundred years ago, doing in Marvel? And this one's fun. And uh, credit goes to both Austin Gorton of Comics XF and Brian Cronin of CBR for this. They both wrote really good articles about it. So apparently in the early 70s, Roy Thomas, who you may know as an old Silver Age X-Men writer and a writer of all kinds of stuff in Marvel, I think he was an editor as well. He was, yeah. Yeah, he overheard that some DC writers had gone to the head of DC saying, hey, that Kung Fu show that's on television is really popular. Should we do a Kung Fu tie-in comic? And... In this purported conversation, the head of DC was like, nah, not going to worry about it. And the writers were like, okay, but what if what if Marvel does that? And supposedly, said head of DC replied, well, if they do a Kung Fu comic, we'll just do a Fu Manchu comic. Roy Thomas overheard this or thought he overheard this or something. like. Roy Thomas
1: said he knew a guy who said he overheard this.
0: Exactly. Uh, and apparently Roy Thomas actually got Stan Lee to license Fu Manchu from like the estate that owned those old novels. And thus, Marvel wrote a comic called Master of Kung Fu, which was about the son of Fu Manchu.
1: However, Marvel's license to Fu Manchu expired in 1983, and at this point had yet to be renewed, so they can't actually mention him by name.
0: Yeah, so it's one of these things where Shang-Chi will just keep talking about his evil father, and like you can even see his evil father in a, in a flashback picture at one point, but never is the name Fu Manchu said, which honestly is probably for the best. It's kind of like how the Space Knights are still around in Marvel, but nobody can talk about Rom, the Space Knight, or how Godzilla's occasionally mentioned, but they can't actually say Godzilla, they have to, like, describe him differently.
1: A large lizard-like creature born of atomic radiation, and an
0: age long ago. I mean, I think that actually happened in that one Wolverine annual we talked about that was about Red Ronin, remember?
1: Yeah, I do. Oh, it was great. I like the stage of Godzilla where where he has has big aquiline brown eyes and looks kind of like a cat. Yeah. He looks kind of pettable. I want to pet that Godzilla. He's a good dude. He's a friend to humanity.
0: Kind of. Sometimes. Gamera is a friend to all children.
1: Gamera's from an entirely different different company.
0: Yeah, well, regardless... Anyway, so that's the deal with Shang-Chi. He actually hadn't really been around much for a while at this point. Like, he'd had his own series for a number of years, and then he just showed up here and there. Like, he was in a Captain America story at one point, a Marvel Comics Presents story. Um, I think at this point, he'd already defeated his dad, Fu Manchu's dad at this point. So, yes, that's where we start. But before we get further, let's talk a little bit about Pacheco's art, because... We have Shang-Chi ambushed by these cyber ninjas, who, by the way, are distinct from the cyberai, the cyborg samurai from that old X-Factor arc. They're they're different. And it's a kick-ass fight scene. Pacheco draws an awesome action scene. Like, Shang-Chi is just flowing naturally from one movement to the next, like, from one panel to the next. At one point, he, like, grapples this ninja while kicking another in the face. And in the panel after that, he uses the ninja that he grappled as, like, this pivot point to do one of those spinning bird kick things that Chun-Li does. It's awesome. Like, I'm not gonna necessarily compare it to frank miller's art in the first wolverine miniseries because that was like life-changing good but this is that level of coherent
1: that's exactly the word i was about to use it's it's an incredibly incredibly coherent incredibly easy to follow detailed fight scene that is still paced very dynamically
0: weirdly the speech bubbles in this arc are not easy to follow like on no. a couple of two-page spreads it's really hard to tell what order the speech bubbles are in which is weird because this is as always lettered by richard starkings and comic and richard starkings is a phenomenal letterer so i kind of wonder what happened there
1: so i may be able to answer that or at least i can i can pull out one possibility who does the balloon placements the letterers or editorial or the artist it varies a lot from series to series era to era and publisher to publisher And something that you see happening, especially in the 90s, and especially in books with superstar artists, is the balloons getting basically squished around the art without a lot of attention to to balloon flow.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense, because, yeah, the balloons do seem squished around the art, exactly.
1: So this fight scene goes on for a while until it hits the point that is contractually obligated in every every Marvel comic involving ninjas uh, where Wolverine shows up.
0: Here comes a new challenger! Like, he's wearing his civilian clothing, but he also has a giant belt buckle that says American Beauty, and this comic came out in 97. The American Beauty movie was 99, so I assume that's a reference to the 1970 Grateful Dead album? Yes. Yeah, I, I just don't really see Wolverine as a deadhead, you know?
1: But do you see him beating up a deadhead and stealing their belt buckle?
0: Uh, you know, maybe, actually. Maybe. And the way Pacheco draws Logan. Now, remember, this is the point where Logan was still devolving, where he was still in this bestial form. Like, he was starting to come out of it, but he hadn't really fully yet.
1: I love his little tusks.
0: He's got, yeah, his his lower canine teeth just are sort of this underbite tusk thing going on. And he's got these gigantic tufts of arm hair. And, like, his face is all squished. He has a nose, but his nose is very tiny. And he's just, like, really distorted. Like, his muscles are just gigantic, and he doesn't have quite human proportions.
1: I enjoy that when Wolverine becomes more bestial, he doesn't actually resemble a Wolverine more.
0: Yeah, he's just sort of like a, I don't know, a werewolf looking dude. He's he's
1: just his his own self. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, it's time for misunderstanding-based fight, of course. Uh, Shang-Chi is surprised that this beastly beast of a beast, Logan, fights like a samurai. And, uh, Logan does indeed take Shang-Chi down and does that whole... Left claw on one side of his face, right claw on the other side of his face, want to see the third. I, I feel like that has to happen every time Wolverine is about to interrogate someone.
1: Um, yeah, and he he keeps this up until Storm literally strikes him with lightning to get his attention. Oh god, it's
0: like spraying water at your cat. Bad kitty, don't claw the couch, don't murder Shang-Chi.
1: Oh, God, he is very Kate Beaton Wolverine at this point, isn't he? He totally is, yeah.
0: Listeners, if you haven't uh, seen Kate Beaton's comics, they're delightful, and her comics about the X-Men are maybe the most delightful. No, second most delightful. Nancy Drew is the most delightful.
1: Also, I am really, 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 really looking forward to Ducks, which is her nonfiction memoir about um, working in the oil oil sands, which comes out this year.
0: Whoa, I hadn't heard of that. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's it looks really incredible.
0: Sweet. Well... Anyway, uh, the Bad Kitty is then blasted out of the way by Cannonball, and there is this wonderful panel. Like, on the left side, there's a little speech bubble with Cannonball saying, Aw, shucks, Wolvie. And in the middle is just this gigantic whoosh, and then on the right side, there's a speech bubble coming from off-panel on the other side with Cannonball saying,
1: That's no way to treat strangers.
0: I love that Cannonball blasted Wolverine from one side of the panel to the other so fast that you don't actually get to see Wolverine, you just get to see the dialogue move.
1: That is... A good trick with the lettering.
0: Ah, oh, so good. So anyway, as you might imagine, the X-Men were also called here by that Reston guy because Reston is an old friend of Logan's, because literally every character in the Marvel Universe is an old friend of Logan's.
1: Are they, or do they just claim to be and rely on his unreliable memory to fill in the blanks? Well, that's a really good point. We could say that we're old friends of Logan's, and then he would have to help us out. He'd probably try to anyway. Again, he'd just show up at the window in the middle of the night and give up r- with relationship advice. Oh, yeah, Logan. It's, uh,
0: you know, he's really a double-edged adamantium claw. Sometimes it works out for him to be around, sometimes it really, really doesn't.
1: Right now, he's not. He's all bone claws here.
0: Oh, that's true, and his bone claws are very jagged in this form, which always seemed extremely uncomfortable when he took them out and put them back in.
1: Have you noticed that his costume just gets more and more and more shredded? It does!
0: Yeah, also in this arc, whenever he cuts somebody, he doesn't seem to, like, actually cut into them, he just rips their clothes, and so there are these scraps of fabric stuck to his claws, like, half the time. It's very strange.
1: Like wee little cocktail flags.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. Anyway, Shang-Chi has no clue who these clowns are, because he's been mostly out of comics for almost a decade.
1: Yeah, he's been been off meditating and avoiding the main Marvel Universe, and now these assholes show up.
0: I bet he hasn't even seen the X-Men animated series, jeez.
1: My god, he's like me. He's just like me.
0: You eventually saw it, just not in 1997.
1: Well, maybe he's seen it by now, too.
0: Uh, That's true, that's true. He's been through a lot. It's it's now 2022. So Reston breaks up yet another misunderstanding-based fight when Shang-Chi finds Phoenix and Cyclops spying on him. And we meet him. He's an older man with leg braces and crutches, and he lets Shang-Chi know what the X-Men already know which is that a guy named Sebastian Shaw is seeking the Elixir Vitae. Fu Manchu was all about the Elixir Vitae. Or is it Vitae? I don't actually know. I'm not an alchemist.
1: Yeah, uh, as as I am likewise not an alchemist, nor fluent in Latin, I cannot answer that.
0: Well, anyway, the Elixir V, for short— uh, that's actually the same stuff as Kandra's Elixir of Life, Kandra the External, that gives that to the Thieves and Assassins to extend their lives. No, the, she only you,
1: gives it to one—she only gives it to one of them. One of the uh, well, right, but— like, One they side can gets kinda... long life, the other side gets whatever other thing—short life, I don't know.
0: Random powers, I think. Well, anyway, yeah, it's the, the powers, same stuff. Yeah, the Assassins yeah. get
1: powers, the Thieves get long life. Thieves.
0: So, yeah, that's the Elixir Vitae. Fu Menchu was all about it, he was trying to use it to be immortal, didn't work out, he's dead— But Sebastian Shaw, Sebastian Shaw is also supposed to be dead. We know he's not because he showed up here and there in between pages of stories. But uh, yeah, he's one of the original members of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club as we met them back in the 70s. He was supposedly murdered by his son Shinobi Shaw before he could tell Shinobi Shaw what sex is. But somehow he, um, I don't know is less murdered than we thought.
1: Being difficult to kill is one of his primary characteristics, like, even beyond the extent to which comics characters are traditionally difficult to kill. He's also
0: just a stubborn asshole, and I feel like he can be a stubborn enough asshole that he can't even die properly. Like, death shows up, and he just gives death twin birds, and death feels kind of bad and walks away.
1: Yeah, basically.
0: Yeah. So he's a jerk. He's very business-oriented. Like, he was one of the people that funded the Sentinel program back in the day, even though Sentinels hunt mutants, of which he is one. He doesn't care anything about that. He just cares about profit and power.
1: Especially power. However, sometimes something comes up that is a direct threat that even money and power can't alleviate, like the legacy virus. Right. So Reston believes that Shaw is after the elixir vitae, and... um. That the X-Men immediately assume that Shaw is going to want it for additional and nefarious reasons, both to make himself immune to the the legacy virus and to hold that power over others.
0: Yep. So it's time for our heroes to fly to Hong Kong, which at this point the comic mentions is only months away from transitioning from British control to Chinese control, which, oh boy, that's a whole thing, and I don't feel nearly qualified enough to discuss that.
1: Do you feel like the long sequences of narration about Hong Kong politics in in this arc— are really intensely paraphrased from an encyclopedia. Uh, y-
0: you know, they, they might be, actually. I don't know, I haven't gotten a good enough feel for Ben Robb's writing style yet.
1: They have that vibe.
0: No fair. Anyway, the X-Men and Shang-Chi get to Hong Kong, but unfortunately, as soon as they get there, some cyber ninjas blow up their car. They're okay, but the cyber ninjas, I love the fact that they say this, say,
1: Welcome to Hong Kong, X-Men. You will not survive the experience. See,
0: they're familiar with the X-Men. They know the catchphrases. And that leads us to X-Men number 63, Games of Deceit and Death, part two of three.
1: This is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Ben Robb, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Chris Leichner and Aaron Lucen, and lettered by Richard Sarkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. Emerson Miranda's a really good name. It really is.
0: Now, it wouldn't be a chapter in this story unless Shang-Chi said something like...
1: I neither expected to meet the outlaw X-Men, nor was I prepared to be drawn into games of deceit and death. He said it! He said it! Take another drink! It feels like product placement for your own product. I know, right? Like, like, like advertising the movie within the movie that it, it's being advertised in.
0: I really love that meme online where they'll just, like, edit the titles of things into the dialogue from those things. like. Ah, it looks like you were the true resident
1: evil. So, this issue opens with the X-Men facing off against a, a group of cyber ninjas whom Cyclops dug, uh, whom Cyclops, like the square he is, dubs Robopunks. And they should get off his lawn. They should, but um, it, it, the whole thing is fairly silly. So these are dudes who have been sub- somewhat augmented, and they get names this, this issue briefly. There's Bludgeon, who can, quote, wield the very powers of gravity itself, which mostly seems to mean lift-heavy stuff. There's Katana, who uh, I guess has one. And there's Fist, who, again, I guess has one.
0: There's also this fourth guy who seems to have an arm cannon, and just as he's announcing his own name, Cyclops just zarks him in the face, and he doesn't get a chance to say his name, and we never find out. Poor guy.
1: This, this issue is also the source of the all-time great uh, Cyclops panel with, with the line, I couldn't hear you boasting over the sound of my optic blast.
0: It's great. I think that guy's name was probably Arm.
1: Meanwhile, Shang-Chi offers background insights about the X-Mans, as does the narration. Shang-Chi senses that Logan and Jean, for instance, are unrequited lovers.
0: You know, the Marvel database does list one of Shang-Chi's skills as philosophy. Also, patient fishing.
1: Yeah, but what they don't mention is that when they say philosophy, they mean symbolic logic.
0: Uh, Yeah, maybe true.
1: And with one ninja left and about to be questioned, Sebastian Shaw emerges and makes a Phoenix pun. Jean reacts really strongly to this. She freaks out and throws a car at him, which seems atypically extreme given that she's literally going by Phoenix as her codename these days.
0: Yeah, but remember, while it wasn't technically her that became Dark Phoenix, it was specifically the inner circle of the Hellfire Club that messed with her mind to the point where Phoenix became Dark Phoenix. Well, that messed with Phoenix's mind to the point where Phoenix became Dark Phoenix. And she does have all of Phoenix's memories, so she's got that intense, intense violation and trauma right there, so I get it.
1: Okay, fair enough. And uh, Sebastian Shaw has has a delightfully inflated opinion of his importance to the X-Men canon.
0: That's right, X-Men. Your worst nightmare is once more horrific reality. Sebastian Shaw lives!
1: So during the battle, Cannonball has slipped off. He saw a rickshaw with a suspicious payload passing by and decided to pull in newsies and grab onto the underside of it. This
0: rickshaw is about as sturdy
1: as a henhouse and a twister. And he decides that he's doing this. He's doing this solo spy thing because he watched so much Magnum P.I. with Sunspot.
0: Aw, bros. You know, like that new movie. Maybe a lot like that new movie.
1: Sam should grow a mustache.
0: Oh yeah, because Roberto canonically cannot grow a mustache. And so Roberto could, like, live his mustache dreams through Sam's mustache.
1: That's friendship right there.
0: They are really good friends. You know, I actually fell into a Tumblr hole, which was basically shipping the two of them. And I'm not much of a shipper in general, but that Tumblr hole made some very, very good points.
1: There's a lot of holes on Tumblr.
0: I mean, yes, 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 there are.
1: Fewer now with the content restrictions, but...
0: (laughs) Anyway, everybody heads back to Sebastian Shaw's fancy, fancy place to talk.
1: Shaw is indeed after the Elixir Vitae. He's playing himself as a benefactor, but clearly has another agenda. And we mentioned last episode um, that exchange with Rory Campbell, where Campbell gave him the disc with the legacy virus data um, in exchange for the, the cybernetic leg. And this is where that we see that exchange actually take place. And here Campbell's motives are very solidly established as altruistic, although he also describes himself as trading away his soul. So,
0: Remember, Rory Campbell cares a lot about Mara McTaggart, and she is dying of the legacy
1: virus. And she and Hank Mahoya aren't making significant headway on finding a cure. So the X-Men head off to meet up with Cannonball at, at you know, where he's ended up um, on the rickshaw, which is a place called Fujikawa Enterprises. It's on a small island off the coast of Hong Kong. But each party is waylaid on their way to their meeting by a large, bald man with a cigar, who is none other than Wilson motherfucking Fisk.
0: The Kingpin.
1: Yeah, yeah, Kingpin. Which, you know... Might not seem like a big deal if you'd just been reading X-Men, but uh, he has been through some stuff in Daredevil and was definitely not assumed to be alive or at least functional at this point. Didn't
0: you say something about him being king of the rats when we were talking about this? Oh yeah, he was living in a sewer for a while. Oh, like you do. A lot of people live in sewers in Marvel. Really fiction in general. I wouldn't want to live in a sewer.
1: I may be mistaken and I should really have gone through and, and matched up the dates. So I may be completely wrong about this, but I believe this is the time when, when his son theoretically killed him.
0: Okay, gotcha. Wait, which son?
1: So this this is this is his son Richard, who who also went by the the Rose, and I believe was was one of the earlier out gay characters in Marvel Comics.
0: Oh, I had his Marvel Series 3 trading card. He had a pretty cool look actually.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was basically a tuxedo and sunglasses, which really never goes out of style. I think he had a mask on the trading card. He had killed Wilson and temporarily taken over his criminal empire until being killed by his mother. Um, But meanwhile, again, yeah, Wilson ended up alive, reigning over a sewer, and now is in Hong Kong, reigning over Fujikawa Enterprises. Comics! And that brings us to X-Men number 64, Games of Deceit and Death, part three of three.
0: Plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Ben Robb, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Taber, colored by Chris Lichtner and Aaron Lucen, lettered by Richard Starkings in Comicraft, and Albert DeShane. And there is a pretty sweet title page here. It's got all the characters' faces in these green bubbles that are, like, rising from this boiling green stuff that I assume is the elixir vitae, with a syringe half-submerged in it. It's pretty great. So, you know, villains got a villain, and sometimes they do it better than others— the
1: kingpin tells the heroes, In the tradition of our eastern neighbors, I bid you welcome to Asia. Such a shame that you have come all this way simply to die.
0: Is, is welcoming people a, a strictly eastern neighbor thing? Have I been appropriating by welcoming people? This is a very confusing bit of dialogue.
1: Well, everything he knows about Asian cultures comes from the X-Men arcade game. In which Magneto notoriously says, welcome to die. So it's not just welcoming people, but specifically welcoming people to die.
0: Oh, oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, And that game was made in Japan, I believe, so there we go. Exactly. Anyway, Logan cuts up Fisk's clothing, as he does to a lot of people in this arc... But here's the thing. The Kingpin has captured our best spy friend, Cannonball, and has him unconscious and wired into this big-ass machine with this syringe right above his heart connected to all these tubes full of green shit.
1: For some reason, I thought you were going to say, but here's the thing. The Kingpin is wearing a lot of clothing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Logan would have to cut for a really long time to, like, show any nip or whatever. So this big injection machine, like, it could make Cannonball immune to the Legacy virus, or it could give him the Legacy virus. All right, come on, I'm tired of all this anti-vax information. The Legacy vaccine does not actually contain any of the virus. It's just designed to bind to the characteristic spike protein of the... Wait, that's the other one. Still. Still, right? Anyway, Cyclops is, like, so hardcore in the way he addresses Fisk. Scott says Fisk has two minutes to let Sam go and give the X-Men the elixir and all of the records and all of the equipment. Fisk is amused.
1: And so the cornered prey threatens
0: its predator. But Fisk isn't here to fight any more than Shaw was, so he lets Sam go, and Villain explains how he's going to make bank using pretty much the same method that Sebastian Shaw, it seemed like, was going to.
1: So then there's a standoff. Um, Fisk says he'd destroy the elixir before giving it to them, but then. Like a motherfucking Kaiju, Sebastian Shaw bursts up from below, through the floor.
0: It's great! It's like he's a member of X-Factor, but vertically. Uh, he was actually hoping the X-Men would just take care of this, but uh, no, now everyone's surrounded by cyber ninjas and everybody narrows eyes at everyone, and it's a great big standoff. Shang-Chi realizes he's gotta get involved.
1: Long had I hoped to put these games of deceit and death behind me, in exchange for the peaceful path of an enlightened warrior. He said it again! He said it a third time! Take another drink! Um, and I would have to utter the phrase yet a third time, thus effectively summoning it.
0: Hmm, rule of three. And, uh, then Storm just calls down lightning on the whole damn lab and destroys everything, including the Elixir Vitae. Fisk's response is just so perfectly Fisk. <clears>
1: hmm. <throat>
0: And so that's that. This may have been a cure for the legacy virus, but to keep it out of the hands of bad people who would misuse it on the off chance that it worked, uh, the X-Men destroyed it, and now they're going home.
1: Well, they're trying to go home.
0: Because Gene is hit with some kind of a psychic whammy and falls unconscious, just as the ship is intercepted by a giant Operation Zero Tolerance techno-fleet. As for Shang-Chi, uh, he'll show up again a little bit later after this in Journey into Mystery, which became a sort of miniseries series book after Thor's Lost God story. It's a whole thing, and these days he's much more of a major character. But that brings us to the issue we've all been waiting for, the official prologue to Operation Zero Tolerance, X-Men number 65, titled, like the novel that inspired the first Rambo, First Blood.
1: Have you ever seen that movie? Because I haven't actually seen any any Rambo movies, and I've been told that makes me a bad American.
0: Uh, From what I understand, no, I have not seen any Rambo movies, but from what I understand, the first one is actually a really good meditation on, like, the trauma of veterans returning after war. Uh, It's supposed to be great. The other ones are more like just standard action movies, from what I've heard.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, this First Blood is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Chris Leitner and Aaron Lucent, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So Jean, having fallen unconscious in the ship, very briefly materializes in the basement of Stark Industries, where she's confronted by a very confused Heroes Reborn Iron Man.
0: Uh, yeah, she's in the Heroes Reborn dimension. And this may have actually happened a few issues ago, because there's this really brief scene in X-Men number 61, where Jean's hanging out with the X-Men, and she turns a corner, and she's in this empty, abandoned Manhattan, and then she turns another corner, and she's back with the team— I'm not really sure if this went anywhere with Jean flashing into the Heroes Reborn universe multiple times. Like, if this is something that pays off in the Heroes Reborn comics, because I haven't actually read them. But, um, that's a thing. Anyway, she's unconscious, then she feels better, but her powers are all fucked up, which helps drive the plot.
1: Right, her telepathy is out when she comes to, as, unfortunately, are the cabin pressure and the jet's controls from the damage that the, the plane has taken. That makes evasive maneuvers pretty much impossible, so Cannonball jumps out to confront the OZT ships directly and immediately comes face-to-face with a bunch of fancy newfangled sentinels with human faces and outfits that evoke bastions.
0: Yeah, these sentinels, uh, they go by PS, Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. PS stands for Prime Sentinel. And one of the things that makes them most interesting is kind of like Nimrod, the ultra-advanced future sentinel, these sentinels are person-sized. And we're going to find out a lot more about why as this event goes on. It's kind of fucked up. It's, it's real fucked up, and also these Sentinels are very, very effective, and uh, yeah, they
1: take Cannonball out. Not only that, but during a pass, two of them grab and carry off Cyclops. As Storm flies, they trap her in some kind of expanding polymer, and Logan finally th- throws the ship into a dive and jumps out with Jean, and they both end up buried in rubble.
0: So things are not going great for our heroes, and meanwhile, we see a little bit of a news broadcast. Henry Peter Fucking Gyric, the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe, is spinning this whole fight as the as this act of mutant aggression. And interestingly, he's talking to a journalist named Roger Kren. I don't think Roger Kren is particularly significant, but Kren mentions that he's filling in for Trish Tilby, who's out because she's, you know, in space.
1: It's a lovely bit of continuity there. And as Uh. Kren says
0: As impossible as it sounds, are you saying the United States government has granted permission for a paramilitary organization to operate on American soil and to open fire on her citizens?
1: And Gyrick defends that and defends Operation Zero Tolerance with, of course, a cherry-picked list of, of look how evil mutants are.
0: It is rough. This is, uh, it's paralleling so many things in the real world, past and present. And in fact, there are two elderly Japanese folks in a place where this broadcast is playing who are looking worried, and the narration tells us they effectively remember the internment camps, the Japanese internment camps of World War II. Like, it's really laying the metaphor on thick, but when it's intersectional like that, when it has the mutant metaphor and actual real discrimination kind of refer to each other, I think that works.
1: Also watching are a group of emergency room doctors in the Bronx, including Dr. Cecilia Reyes, who's pretty vocally anti-mutant.
0: Yeah, that's right. This is the first appearance of Cecilia Reyes, who's going to become a much bigger deal very shortly in X-Men, and then mostly get forgotten for a long time. But she's a big deal for a while.
1: And on Long Island, as the broadcast continues, Bobby Drake ices up and heads out with the support of his somewhat grumbly father.
0: Oh, man, I kind of teared up at the part where, like, Iceman's telling his dad he has to go because he's been taking care of his dad since his dad was beaten by anti-mutant bigots. And and his dad tells him to make him and Bobby's mom proud as Bobby leaves. And they've come so far.
1: And as all of this is going on, cop cars are converging on 1407 Graymalkin Lane, the Xavier Mansion. Now they don't know why they're there. They've just been told that their job is to hold the place until the feds arrive. The feds in this case being code for more OZT sentinels who wreck things until the prime unit arrives. The prime unit is of course Bastion.
0: And Bastion is being a total smug shit as these troops overtake the X mansion. They just take it over.
1: It's it's empty at the time, so they're they're literally just walking in. And he beams a call to Professor X, who at this point is still in federal custody, because this takes place slightly before the onslaught epilogue in which he escapes.
0: Right. We also will find out that Bastion got the door codes from Jubilee, who he kidnapped in Generation X number 25. We'll be getting to more of that in our next Generation X episode.
1: And while still on the call with Xavier, so Xavier can see exactly what he's doing, Bastion makes use of those codes.
0: Computer, open all files for the Danger Room schematics. All files for the Xavier Protocols. All files for the Mutant Underground.
1: Oh, dang. It's on.
0: Especially that middle part. The Xavier Protocols we learned in Onslaught are Xavier's notes on how to kill each and every individual mutant that he knows about. This is is bad. This is genuinely chilling. It's often been said the X-Men are at their best when their backs are against a wall, and Operation Zero Tolerance is probably one of the most intense examples of that. Uh, Although these days they're doing really well when Krakoa is going pretty well, but uh, yeah, this is going to get dark. And the way this issue is paced is wonderful. We didn't talk about it this way in the podcast because we try to make it a little more coherent for an audio format, But the comic cuts rapidly between the X-Men's fight in the sky, law enforcement surrounding the mansion, various people reacting to the news reports in various places. Like, it is a tense goddamn issue.
1: And it escalates incredibly well and incredibly smoothly. One of the things we talked about Onslaught doing wrong was not really establishing the stakes well enough. And the OZT prologue does that extremely deftly.
0: Totally does. So... We're next going to see the Earthbound team of X-Men actually weirdly in the Wolverine comic. In the X-Men book itself, there's going to be a team of different characters. It's a bold choice for a crossover. I think it's kind of interesting. I'm excited to get to that.
1: And meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Your recent mentions of and Creed and the Morlocks made me wonder. Are there any examples of mutants who are visibly non-baseline human, for example, Nightcrawler, having mutant children who can pass for baseline human?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, because there are lots of examples of kids who inherit a visible mutation, like an appearance-based mutation. So Nightcrawler gets his appearance from both his mom, Mystique, and his dad, Azazel. Ruby Summers gets her appearance indirectly from Emma Frost in that alternate future she's from. Nocturne from another alternate universe gets her appearance from her dad, Nightcrawler.
1: It's funny that you're going through alternate universe ones, because the first person I came up with who answered that um, those those qualifications was Charles Xavier Jr., who is the alternate universe kid of Charles Xavier and Mystique.
0: That's true. Uh, that He does look just like Xavier, even though Mystique is not a, uh, a visible non-mutant person. But Mystique's also a shapeshifter, so I feel like that might be a little different. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So the examples, especially in Earth-616 that I could find, of non-passing parents having passing children weirdly we're all Apocalypse's descendants because Apocalypse does not look human. Like, when his powers manifested way back in the Rise of Apocalypse miniseries in the distant past, he started looking like the gray, blue-lipped dude that we know and love. But because he's so old, he's had so many kids, especially with all the retcons of the last few decades. So Margaret, Frederick, and Hamilton Slade, they all pass as human, although Hamilton less so after he becomes a vampire. we I don't think we've talked about them in the podcast. They, they don't matter too much right now. But also, Jack and Jonathan Starsmore, or at least Jonathan Starsmore, passed as human until his powers blew part of his face and chest off. That's right. We will later find that Chamber is technically a descendant of Apocalypse, because why not? We did a cold open about it. We did indeed. Indeed. But then again, what we were just talking about with Mystique, I guess, could apply to Apocalypse. Like, he does have matter-manipulating powers, and the Slades all have those powers, so I guess they could use those powers to look more human, so maybe that doesn't count? I don't know. But, Anonymous, you're right. There are shockingly few examples of this. Weird. Another Anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, What non-mutant Marvel superhero do you think would work well in a Carol Danvers role alongside an X-team? And what if they literally subbed in for Carol, i.e., Rogue takes their powers?
1: So... I went in a weird direction for this. My my first thought was Loki. Loki, huh?
0: I mean, he certainly had some interactions with the X-Men in the past.
1: He's a character who was a villain for a long time, but is is now much more morally gray and has been on and off for a very long time. And I think that fits well with, with the X-Men, with the X-Men's historical relationship with reformed villains. But also, I really like the idea if he's taking the literal Carol Danvers role of being someone who rogue absorbed and absorbed that completely what kind of interplay you'd get with someone who was that ethically variable and also whose powers came from such a different direction
0: yeah i mean rogue depending on how we interpret her powers could kind of
1: become the goddess of stories to an extent or of tricks yeah, because you take take rogue and add a trickster God and you get a very, very different balance. And especially if they're they're if they're two consciousnesses sharing her body the way hers and Carol's were.
0: That would be bizarre, but I feel like the right writer could totally make that work. I was thinking of keeping it a little more Carol adjacent and going with a different character to bear the name Ms. Marvel, namely Kamala Khan. Like, it kind of comes at it from the other side. Carol was more experienced than most of the X-Men when she teamed up with them. Kamala is less experienced, although she has been around for a while. But she would still bring this very different perspective to the team, like if she was stuck on a long mission with them the way that Carol was. You know, less cosmic and more more street level. Plus, mutant inhuman tension is always fun, especially given um some stuff I won't spoil about a thing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that. That's a particularly interesting answer given the directions it looks like they're going to take her in the MCU.
0: Yeah, but also, I don't know, tapping into fan anger at the time that Marvel was pro- promoting the Inhumans more than the X-Men is, is kind of fun. Uh, that being said, Rogue is not allowed to permanently absorb Kamala's powers and consciousness because I'm very protective of one of my favorite recent characters, Kamala. Um, but seeing Rogue and embiggening and stretching all around would, would be pretty great. So I don't know. Maybe it'd be worth it.
1: So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. And some of those tiers of listener support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. But our ability to thank you relies on your responses to our emails asking for your name and contact information when the time comes to do that.
0: Uh, yeah, we mentioned this last episode, but that episode actually hasn't gone live as we record this, so so no one knows yet. But, um, if you've been supporting us for six months at the Clone of Jean Grey level, or for three months at the Probably a Summer's Brother or Iceman with a Wizard Beard level, then, um, yeah, please check your email to see if you have an old message from us about Patreon and reply. Or you can just email us at explaintheexperiment@gmail.com. and if you do that, please put Patreon thanks in the subject line.
1: And if you're not supporting us on Patreon, we would love it if you would consider doing that. As you can tell from this, we have cool tiers and cool prizes, and also... Our patrons are the folks who let us keep doing this week after week, entirely self, self-governed self and entirely free of outside advertising.
0: Oh man, if we were beholden like to Marvel at all, we wouldn't get to make nearly as many dick jokes.
1: And we'd have to tell you about so many mattresses.
0: Or socks. I mean, to be fair, those socks are actually pretty good. But I won't mention them by name, because we're ad-free.
1: Or meal delivery. Or meal delivery. So socks that, that, that deliver mattresses for dinner aside... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps.
1: Next week is Hawk Talk, and in two weeks, the Generation X kids float around.
0: Well, minus Jubilee.
1: Also, fair warning, one of my neighbors seems to be hammering on a wall. Like gently, but persistently, I assume they're hanging pictures or something. So um, if you hear slight tapping noises, it's that, not like a heart I buried under the floorboards or anything.
0: Or a weird baby Colin Robinson.
1: Or a weird baby Colin Robinson.